1: Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
2: Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Happy 2023 to all of you. Over the Christmas period, one thing became very clear, and that is that Elon Musk is now surely the most talked about person in the world. His pronouncements are now pounced on every single day by supporters, detractors alike. Dare I say it, no one since Donald J. Trump has shown quite the same flair for saying things that put him at the center of the story. His takeover of Twitter seems somehow incredibly significant for our culture and so much more than just a business transaction. Well, one person who spends a lot of time with him, they appeared together on podcasts sitting next to each other, but also was a co-founder alongside him of PayPal back in the day, is David Sachs. He is now, of course, a big Silicon Valley figure in his own right, general partner at Craft Ventures and host of the smash hit podcast, All In. He joins us from the Bay Area to help try to give us some better information than just the rumor mill on what the atmosphere is really like and what he thinks it tells us about power, politics, technology, maybe even the future. So, David, welcome back to the show.
3: Good to be here. Good to see you, Freddie.
2: As I said there in the introduction, you, unlike so many of us, actually have proper information about the atmosphere, what is being talked about in the room, and what the kind of vibe is around this extraordinary Elon Musk takeover of Twitter. What should we know that we don't know? What is what is the mood in the room
3: you know the 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 mood at, at twitter i think they are kind of heads down now and working on uh, product development um mm-hmm. you know the 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 things that people talk about outside the company uh it's you know 95 percent about speech debates that's maybe five percent of the conversation inside the company and the other 95 percent is just building the product how do we make this better how do we ship more features how do we get more right. efficient as a company Uh, The company's been losing a lot of money. We're probably going into a recession. So there's just a lot more focus on Twitter as a business. And that's really what people are talking about at that company, as you might expect, like any company. Hmm. Um, It's just that what the outside world wants to talk about is like a very small portion of the issues that Twitter has to deal with.
2: What should ordinary people understand to be, do you think, the kind of motivations for this transaction? Because... There's so much conspiracy, there's so much bad information out there as to what Mr. Musk is actually trying to do, why he would want to buy this platform. It, as you say, the the business case is a bit shaky at best. Um, what do you think the mission really is?
3: Well, I think Elon's been very clear and explicit about that. He wanted to buy Twitter to restore its proper place as a free speech platform, uh, as a marketplace of ideas, as opposed to a place where the debate is heavily censored and it's turned out that it's been even more heavily censored than we possibly could have imagined. Um, Hmm. Twitter for years has been telling us that they were not engaged in shadow banning. As it turns out, they were. Uh, Even worse, they were doing so at the behest of the U.S. government. They're very deeply intertwined, the relationship between uh, Twitter's trust and safety and the FBI and the intelligence community. I mean, really stunning revelations have come out in the Twitter files. So you know, Elon stated what his objective was, which was again he's motivated by free speech, and it's turned out to be an even bigger issue than maybe we even knew at the time. So I think that's, I mean, w- w- in general, what you see is what you get with Elon. I mean, he states what he's trying to do. There's no mystery about it. Mm. And um, the, you know, the one place where I would maybe disagree with you is I think that Twitter can be a great business uh, as well. You know, in addition to fixing. The censorship issues I think can also be a great business because they simply haven't done very much with that product. I mean, the product simply hasn't changed that much in the last 10 years and already in the last month or so, we've seen more improvements to the product than we have in the last number of years. And I think you'll see that continue. I mean, he's, um, you know, some of the big things he's done already, he's already sort of right-sized the cost structure of the company. He's, um, reduced the number of employees to something more sensible so that the company can get profitable next year. Uh, And I just
2: quickly ask you about that that point, because it's so interesting. Is it true that 75% of them have been fired? Do we have have any information as to what number of people have actually been fired from Twitter?
3: Well, I think I think the initial reduction was around 50%. And then that was in sort of the, the riff. And then Elon gave the employees a choice of whether they wanted to take a voluntary three month severance package, which was more than he was required to do. I think that was something like 50% more than the law would require. So they could choose the severance package or they could commit to you know, going back to the office. He wanted people in general to work from the office, not work from home, and to commit to kind of a startup culture, you know, what he called kind of a hardcore uh, you know, culture, uh, just basically working hard. Hmm. And he gave people the choice, and I think maybe another 20% chose voluntarily to leave. 20%, so
2: I, up the remaining fifty percent.
3: Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers. I think there's something like um, two thousand or so employees. I mean, this is not like a small team. They still have thousands of employees there, and then in addition to that, um, uh, they've got thousands of of contractors who are mm-hmm. sort of these outsourced agencies that all these social networks use to implement content moderation policies. So. You know, Twitter is not short-staffed. I mean, if you were to ask the question, how many people do you really need to keep the lights on and the servers running, it'd probably be a few hundred. So, again, this is not a a small number of people. I mean, the reality is Twitter, like a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, was very bloated and overstaffed. And, um, you know, it it was possible to cut, call it three quarters of the employees, and actually improve the performance. Because... You didn't have a bunch of people working across purposes, getting each other's way. So we're seeing a faster pace of product development now from the company with you know, three-quarters fewer employees.
2: I mean, that is or even that on its own is potentially seismic for the whole, the whole world, ultimately. Because, of course, the question in everyone's mind is now, is the same true of Facebook and Google and all of these other big tech companies that 70% of the workforce is maybe not really necessary?
3: You know, it's a it's a great question, Freddie, and I think that question is actually reverberating through Silicon Valley right now. It's a lot of companies well beyond Twitter, big companies as well as startups are asking the question, how many people do we really need right now? Why do we have all these people? Did we get too bloated and inefficient during the sort of boom that we had over the last few years? So I think a lot of companies are now asking that very question, and I would just say that the level of excess and entitlement that grew in these tech companies over the last several years that was fueled, I think, in hindsight by uh, the Fed, by Fed policy, by zero interest rates and free money. Uh, It allowed this culture of excess and entitlement to kind of blow up. And I think now people are really starting to ask the question, you know, should we, you know, right size? And you're already starting to see now major, major layoffs, layoffs far bigger than what Elon did. What Elon did was big in percentage terms, but already... Salesforce just last week, um, Amazon, uh, Facebook, they've already done bigger layoffs in terms of absolute numbers of employees.
2: So there might be a kind of cascading effect coming from what's been going on at Twitter throughout the whole sector, where lots and lots of people lose their jobs.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that the tech sector is already in a major recession, regardless of what happens in the overall economy. I can tell you that Sitting from where I'm, where I'm sitting in Silicon Valley, investing in startups, we're already in the worst tech recession since the dot-com crash of 2000. And it does become a little bit of a vicious cycle, because if you think about it, like this is take Salesforce as an example for a second. They, um, <clears throat> in their most recent quarter, their growth slowed down by two-thirds. So now, last week, in order to keep their unit economics in line, they did this huge layoff. That means that they're going to be cutting... Their purchases from their vendors, and then those vendors are going to have to cut costs. And so, one of the things that we've happened in software over the last decade is we've had this huge tailwind of what's called seat expansion, which is customers just kept buying more and more seats from their software vendors to to basically uh, to basically you know provide provision new employees. But if the number of new employees is shrinking or just fr- freezing then all of a sudden seed expansion could turn to seed contraction. So we're already seeing that a lot of software companies are really feeling this, this bite right now. And um, it's, a, it's a larger problem in the tech economy.
2: So in a way, part of me feels strangely positive about that because it feels like there's a moment of reality that somehow over the last few years, we've been getting used to something that wasn't real. And this is a kind of, this is an unfortunate, painful bloodletting, but in a way it needed to happen and maybe something better can grow out of it. Do you share that? Is this this a necessary period of pain or do you think it's just bad news for everybody?
3: It's it's probably both. I mean, I think it is a necessary uh, period of trying to right-size all these businesses and get more efficient because things were overheated. Valuations were far too high. Companies were burning too much money. Uh, There was, again, too much hiring of a necessary role. So this is a a necessary correction, and these things do need to happen once a decade or so. That being said, it is a very painful period, and it's not a lot of fun to go through as either an investor or as a startup founder. Mm. So necessary, yes, but regrettable at the same time.
2: Do you think there's politics attached to that, that somehow, and this might be a leap too far, but somehow that sense of being comfortable that sense of kind of uh, relying on these very big structures including proximity to the government fed into a slightly left leaning political outlook and that that more entrepreneurial or business focused mindset was dropped and that, that there might be a kind of accompanying political shift to go along with this dose of economic reality
3: well i i think there there are some big political and cultural uh, ramifications to to what's happening i do think that like i mentioned there was this sense of entitlement that built up in the system hmm. and you ended up with a lot of you could call them surplus elites people whose sense of status and entitlement was greater right. than the real economic value and i think one of the reasons why there's been so much hysteria about what elon is doing at twitter is he's really cut to the core of the insecurity that a lot of these surplus elites feel, which is, Elon is saying that listen, your uh, your job here at this company is not based on what your politics are. It's based on what your contribution is, and what you know. And I think that uh, a lot of people built up um, an expectation that as long as they had the right views and associated with the right causes and the right people, that they would have continued economic advancement. Um, I mean, the the person who actually summed this up very well was SBF of the FTX fraud fame. He said, this is the dumb game that we woke Westerners have to play. We say the right shibbles, so everyone likes us. Hmm. And I think there was a sense that that game has been played for a long time by a lot of people. And Elon's actually changing the bargain. He's saying, no, it's not based on what shibbles you buy into. It's based on what economic value you provide. And I think that that is um, sending shockwaves through the system. And I think it's a big part of, again, the historical reaction that you see.
2: It doesn't make you think that sort of peace and calm is ahead of us, does it? Because <laughs> if you've got all these many thousands of people, the, the surplus to requirements people, they're still pretty powerful. You know, they might have just lost a high paying job in a big tech company, but they still have networks, they still have assets with a sort of class of surplus elites who are now going to be increasingly angry, and possibly more radicalized is being created. What happens to them? Where are they going to go? They're going to be politically activated, and you, you kind of fear that an almighty culture war is coming down the road.
3: Well, I mean, if Twitter's any indication, they already were very politically active. Um, so, you know, in fact, what we basically found out is that um, Twitter had the equivalent of several NGOs working inside the company, who, whose job was basically to restrict. Content and censor the other side of the debate, the part of the debate they didn't agree with. And they were doing so in lockstep with various government agencies who were far more involved than we ever thought possible. So I tend to think that the politics was already there, it was on overdrive. And what's being part of the correction now is bringing things back to some sort of economic reality.
2: Mm. Do you feel like, and this again might be a difficult question for someone who is a Silicon Valley investor. But do you feel like part of the problem was just the scale? And that what has happened with those technology companies, because they've all become so global, they somehow became ossified into some kind of big, elite-facing, huge behemoths that ordinary people began to really resent because they were far away. And whether you agreed with the rules or not, they were being set sort of beyond comprehension in some distant land. Do you think that Twitter just got too big? And a lot of these companies have similarly got too big, and maybe part of the formula is smaller, more variety, more competition, more local. Do you think there's any truth in that?
3: Well, I I think that they they clearly got too big in the sense that they're not as economically efficient as they could be and and really are going to need to be to survive this coming tech recession. Um, I tend to think that a big part of the problem, though, is that they were applying rules on um on their users and on society and really on our democracy uh that were not transparent and that people never agreed to remember that twitter's previous management told us that they were not engaged in shadow banning in fact they said that under oath at congressional hearings and what have we learned through the twitter files we've learned that not only were they engaged in shadow banning they called it visibility filtering same thing they had elaborate big brother like tools to be able to throttle the amount of traffic that any particular account gets they could do things like hide you from search hide you from trends There was a do not amplify setting um and so on you know and so it went there were these like check boxes they could simply apply to account to an account to sort of put their thumb on the scale and make sure that they didn't get as much traffic as they would have in a fair system and so not only did it deprive those users of their right to speak, it deprived the public of their right to listen and hear those people in in the way that they should have. And so a good example of this was Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, who...
2: We had him on the show last week.
3: Oh, yeah, great. I mean, he was one of the early critics of lockdowns and pointing out that that policy would not be effective. And yet his traffic was throttled. He was basically shadow banned. Um, I think we're still getting to the bottom of why, whether that was done at the behest of government agencies. It seems like there was a, a, a deeper problem there that we should get into. But, uh, but that's one example of where I think the public debate was really warped by the fact that Twitter's censors were indulging their personal biases and also working on behalf of government agencies that were involved in the public debate in a way that seems completely uh, incongruent with the First Amendment. Um, you know, the, the idea that we had something like 80 FBI agents involved in flagging posts for uh, Twitter to take down, and then the FBI was acting as a conduit for the intelligence community and a bunch of other agencies, uh, acting as what uh, the head of the FBI field office in San Francisco said was the U.S. government's belly button. They were kind of like the centralized point through which all of these requests uh, were delivered. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. No one knew this was going on, and no one would have known this was going on if Elon hadn't bought the company, because they weren't telling us, and in fact, they were lying about it.
2: Hmm. Do you feel it would be fair then, if, if we're thinking about what's happened since, you were just talking then about Twitter 1.0, let's call it, mm-hmm. the, the era since Musk, Twitter 2.0, um, it's very different but it's not exactly neutral, is it? it, it I guess the, the lie or the pretense of Twitter 1.0 was that this was a neutral platform, whilst we now know, but I guess we suspected before, that it wasn't, and there, there were political leanings, there were fingers on the scales. The Musk era is not exactly neutral either, because it's, it's now a ultimately controlled by one man who is very explicit about it. He has a, a whole lot of opinions. He shares them on his own platform every day, and they're political and they're strong, So he's not pretending to be neutral. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. You could see a a different way this might have played out where he would buy it and be kind of ultra careful to appear neutral. That's definitely not what's happened. He's very much saying, I control this and I have strong opinions.
3: Well, so I, I think you're conflating two different things. There's sort of neutral in terms of the application of your content moderation policy and then there's neutral as a user. Elon clearly has opinions and he tweets about them. He did that before acquiring the company. Um, I think he loves using Twitter. It's probably one of the reasons why he bought the company. Was it the old uh, Norelco guy said, I I love the product so much I bought the company. Mm -hmm. So yes, he hasn't stopped doing that. Does that mean that he is implementing his own personal ideology through the content moderation policy? I would disagree with that characterization if that's kind of where it's going. And I know that, this charge of hypocrisy has been leveled at Elon because he's made a few content moderation decisions. But um, but I think the real hypocrisy has been on the part of the media, uh, which for years was cheering on censorship. They were cheering on the deplatforming of a sitting president, for example, the deplatforming of thousands of people they disagreed with. And now, whenever Elon makes any content moderation decision, they basically are up in arms acting like um, they're – they're free speech absolutists. I think that's where the real hypocrisy is. Elon never said that he was going to abolish content moderation. Um, I think he has tried to keep it pretty neutral and fair, and I'm happy to drill into any of these, mm. these issues if, if you want to go further.
2: Throw another one at you, David. Which is another <laughs> one of these yeah. kind of tricky questions, which is what the policy should be on something like health. Because you know we've covered the pandemic probably more than many channels we broke the Great Barrington Declaration story here at Unheard. And, you know, I hope we've done our bit to to even up the scales a bit on that discussion. But ultimately, with something like health, I guess there has to be a policy. You know, you can't have anyone saying anything about any medicine. Or maybe you should have that. Where do you think you would draw the line? And clearly, they went beyond it in suppressing the speech of highly credentialed professors like Jay Bhattacharya. but. What do you think the line should be?
3: Well, um, you know, I think that we should respect science. And I think the thing to understand about science is that it's a process. It's not a specific set of views. It's a process for reaching an outcome. You, you set up hypotheses and you test them and then you get results and then you adjust your hypotheses and you, you, you get to the truth in an iterative way. And I think that part of being a marketplace of ideas is you let that iterative process function. And I think the problem that we saw is that with Twitter 1.0, they thought they had all the answers. And moreover, they appear to have been working with various kinds of government agencies to say these are the only correct answers. And they were entirely wrong about that. I mean, they were wrong about lockdowns. They appear to have been wrong about vaccines in certain ways. Um, We were originally told that if you got the vaccine, you wouldn't have to worry about getting COVID. And that turned out not to be true. And now there may be other things coming out. So... I think this idea that we have all the answers and we can just prematurely end the debate that the the danger in that is that it empowers the trust and safety department at Twitter, who evidently can be leaned on by government agencies who are very powerful and have control over the company in various ways to prematurely end the debate. And so
1: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
3: Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: I think that that the experience of COVID should teach us that that's just not an appropriate role for a social network to be involved in, which is trying to resolve, I'd say, scientific debates or really hot button political issues uh, where the outcome is still very much in debate. So
2: to take an extreme example, if someone wanted to go on Twitter and say, I believe that MMR vaccines are extremely dangerous and are going to harm your child and are going to cause autism in your child and and the rest of it, should that be allowed?
3: I think uh, Robert Kennedy is doing that right now. Um, so 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 the tangible question is, are you going to censor Robert Kennedy? I mean, why? I think let him present his case. And if his case is weak, it should be easy for the scientists to rebut that case. But I don't think that you improve the situation by, um, by censoring him, because what it does is it breeds mistrust. Uh, if there are people out there who want to understand uh, the, either the efficacy or the risks of vaccines, they should be able to go research the issue. And if you're censoring one side of the debate, they're not gonna be able to do that. Let him present his best case, and then let the people who are on the side of vaccines present their best case, and we will get to an answer. And I think that process will be healthier than trying to pretend like we know all the answers in advance, and and, and this idea that we can get to that answer without the process being hopelessly politicized. I think what we've learned from Twitter 1.0 is the process does get politicized, because as soon as you create that power, we're talking about the power to censor and declare the truth and end the debate, there are too many interested parties who want to usurp that power and use it for their own ends? And so we saw all these powerful interests in the U.S. government reach out and lean on Twitter. And initially, Twitter resisted, but eventually they caved and gave in. And so that power—that power to declare what the truth is—got usurped by these um, by these sort of um, nameless actors, hidden actors in the in the sort of permanent government. Um, so I think you know. It, when you start to act as a censor in that way, at least this cascade of all these dangers, and um, to me, that's that's a far uh, riskier situation than allowing there to be a free debate over Mm. vaccines.
2: So we are, just if we think about what the effect of that would be philosophically or on the whole of society, it feels like we're quite far down a change process between a world where people just bought into an outlet And just trusted everything that outlet said towards a world where people, every individual, is basically being asked to make their own judgments about everything. And, you know, no outlet will say there's no misinformation. There's nothing necessarily true or false here. It's creating a more individualistic society, I guess, where we need to be more vigilant all the time and make our own decisions about what we think is true or not. Do you you see what I'm getting at?
3: I do, but it seems to me that um, that free speech was widely accepted as the principle until quite recently. And if you go back even 10 years, it was a bipartisan consensus. Both Democrats and Republicans polled in huge numbers. They supported free speech. This simply wasn't a politically controversial issue. It's only in the last decade, roughly, that this idea that we need to empower centralized authorities who are influenced by the state to regulate the public discourse in order to protect the citizens from themselves. This is an entirely new idea that's really emerged in the last decade or so, along with sort of, you know, what Elon's called the the woke mind virus. So I think what is being advocated here is maybe not a fundamental change, but really a, a, a restoration of the situation we had just a mere decade ago. Hmm. Um, which is that we had a, a relatively free marketplace of ideas, and people could go research an issue and find the information and make it make up their own mind. Um, it's only recently that again we have this um, this movement towards uh, censorship that again we now know is a uh, is a version of state censorship. It's not just big tech companies doing it it's a uh, mm-hmm. it's an alliance of uh, big tech and, and state actors and um, that's the incredibly dangerous thing. and uh, you know one of the things I've called for is a new church uh, committee to investigate the question, why is it that the US security state was deeply involved in censoring the free speech rights of American citizens? We really need to get to the bottom of that because that is the anomalous thing that's happening here. That's the anomaly. It's not this idea that people are trying to find answers on their own. I would argue that 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 was the situation we had before this.
2: I guess it was just built on a bedrock of trust in institutions and enough of a sense that there was like a common society back then that yeah. I'm just less confident than you are still exists.
3: Well, I think I think you're right that um, one of the big dynamics that's happened in our society is that um, is that the there's been uh, an erosion of trust in what you could call prestige media. Hmm. Um, you know, if you look at you know they do these polls, I think Gallup does on institutional credibility. And the media, the prestige media, is just rock bottom. People feel like it's biased, it has an agenda, uh, it's lying to them, and um, and I and I and I think that you know, unfortunately, that distrust is well earned. I think that people are realizing that the prestige media does have a, a, a significant bias to it, and they're looking for alternatives. And this is why you're seeing the rise of independent media. People watch this podcast. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I think unheard is a big part of that. So people are thirsting for answers they cannot get from the traditional media. Uh, but I think that it's, it's traditional media that squandered its credibility and that's the fundamental issue. That's what's created this, um, this need for alternatives. Hmm. Does that create a, a breakdown in some sort of consensus? I think it creates a breakdown in, um, the prestige of these, um, Traditional outlets, but um, but I think that we will, on the other side of this, get to a better place than we would have if we just let these prestige outlets dictate the truth to us, because I don't think they can be trusted to always know the truth.
2: So, do you think, I guess there's some hope in what you're saying, which is that it feels like you think we could get to a better place, and that would look like a new set of institutions, do you think? Do you think it's a new set of media outlets? It's a new set of accompanying institutions that are recommitted to an earlier principle of freedom of thought, freedom of expression? Or do you share, you know, uh, we had Dave Rubin on the show, uh, I think it was last year, and he was very much like, he's just given up on what he thinks of (laughs) as, you know, left leaning prestige institutions, he just wants to build alternatives now. So do, do you think a neutral prestige establishment will ever be found again?
3: Um, I I think that's a great question. And I, I, I'm not quite sure how it's going to play out. I think you could, you're going to see the creation of more and more independent channels. And at the same time, you might get a reformation, maybe of some of these prestige institutions. I mean, I think both efforts need to happen.
2: Let me take it back to Mr. Musk for a a second. And um, do you share any of my concern that some of his kind of quickfire, just putting all of these ideas out there, endangers that more neutral or more free platform. Because if he says very provocative, partisan things on it, as he's the figurehead, if you don't agree with him, and if people, of course, are entitled not to, they will fear, rightly or wrongly, that somehow his influence is you know, I- infecting the rules or the way that... Right. And, and they will go elsewhere. And we've already seen a bunch of progressives saying, I, you know, Twitter is dead. I'm going to leave Twitter. I know that, may, not, that <laughs> not that many of them have at this point. But do you think that there's any danger of that, that by being too out there, too partisan, he's going to imperil his own project?
3: Well, you know, I could flip it around and say at least you know what his political views are. At least you know where his bias is coming from. Because what we saw from the Twitter files is that these Twitter executives, they may not have been stating their bias, but they clearly had deep biases. In fact, they were, in the case of the suppression of the Hunter Biden story or the um, deplatforming of Trump, I mean, there were internal debates showing that under their current policies, they could not make those decisions to, to ban that story or or, the, or that president. And yet they twisted those policies to find a way to do it. And then they were presenting those decisions to the public as neutral content moderation decisions. Oh, they broke our hack policy rule in the case of Hunter Biden, or, you know, Trump broke the incitement policy. And the truth is that they didn't, I mean, regardless of what you think of that story or Trump, they were not in violation of the rules. So listen, I, I, I could flip it around and say, at least we understand where Elon is coming from now. As to this question, are people going to leave? I, you know, there's been this um, again total hysteria on the part of the um, sort of this prestige media in terms of the changes that Elon has made, and uh, we can never forget the the night of November seventeenth, is the week before Thanksgiving, when uh, "Goodbye Twitter" was trending. Remember this hashtag? Uh, all the, uh, the the sort of liberal pundits on Twitter were predicting the site's imminent collapse. I think an NBC an MSNBC commentator had said that the servers were about to go down because Elon had fired so many people and they were all tearfully saying their goodbyes. And it was like this like liberal rapture where they're all like, I will, I will see you in the afterlife on Mastodon or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was this ridiculous outpouring of, um, of, of total panic and hysteria. And, you know, we're now uh, almost two months later, and the site's up and running just fine. So there have been, Freddie, you know, every couple of weeks, there's a new panic about what Elon is doing to improve the company or right-size the cost structure or allow free speech. And, uh, and every time it's, it's proven to be uh, baseless. Mm.
2: The other factor in all of this is the big money companies, the corporations, because in theory... You could sort out a perfectly fair or whatever you think is the right policy on content moderation. But if they're not going to provide the advertising dollars, that is going to be a problem for the company. And a lot of these big money corporations also take a very political view of things. Uh, And if any voices inside them are worried that something is a dangerous environment or doesn't sit with their community values or whatever they will pull advertising from it. And I know that there's been a drive to try and get advertising dollars away from Twitter. What's your view of that? Do you think that is a problem that can be overcome?
3: Well, um, w- one of the, the, um, the few content moderation decisions that Elon has made, I say few because he's really kept the prior content moderation policy in place. He hasn't really changed it that much yet. Um, it's just that he, um, he, he's calling for it to be applied in an in a even-handed way. But in any event, one of the few decisions that he's made was uh, was basically banning uh, Kanye when he posted, uh, you know, a swastika inside the Star of David. And so there's been no tolerance for hate speech on the platform. Just to and, interrupt. Sorry, yeah.
2: I don't like to interrupt, but yeah, does that mean you support that decision to ban Kanye?
3: I think I think it's a practical decision. I mean, Freddie, listen. Do I support the Skokie decision, the Supreme Court decision? Uh, you know, yes, I do. Can you run a social network based on the Skokie decision? No, you can't. It's just not practical. No one wants to log into Twitter and see their content appear near, next to a swastika, and advertisers right. certainly if don't.
2: I, if I remember correctly, the just the rationale for banning Kanye was was incitement to violence. And
3: I think there were like five was, different. Right. I think there's like five different reasons you could ban Kanye. Um, Strictly
2: speaking, I mean, even horrible as it is, a swastika inside a, what was it again? A, I can't even remember, but it was a, a very unpleasant image is not necessarily a direct incitement to violence, is it? You could see how someone might take a different view.
3: You know, I think that uh, Kanye jumped the shark on his third name change. I think his name is Yitler now. So I mean, look, I think there were multiple reasons you could ban Kanye. I think it's for his own good, to be honest. Um, but I think, look, the point is that there's all these critics of Elon who have suddenly become free speech absolutists who want Twitter to now apply, I guess, the Skokie decision and allow swastikas everywhere. And, um, you know, if the worst thing you can say about Elon's content moderation is that he's cracked down on, uh, the posting of swastikas, especially inside of a star of David, I mean, isn't that a good thing? I mean... You know, But but this is kind of where we are in the debate, is that all of a sudden these people who never had a word to say about the banning of Trump or the banning of Jay Bhattacharya or the shadow banning of Jay Bhattacharya and thousands of other people that they disagreed with, they were perfectly fine with that situation. And now all of a sudden they want to defend the right of Kanye to post uh, swastikas on Twitter. All I can say is welcome to the free speech movement. I think this is great. Let's have that debate. Um hmm. But it gives now, it sort of exposes yeah. the,
2: the lie of the idea that there is such a thing as a perfect free speech or there is such a thing as perfect neutrality. Ultimately, what we've done is we've just swapped one powerful entity, Twitter 1.0, for a different one, which has a different perspective, has drawn the line in a slightly different place, still will ban things that he finds sufficiently unpleasant. And isn't that really the reality that there is no, kind of, there's no perfect free speech, but also there is no such thing as perfectly neutral? Uh, and we've just swapped one perspective with its own biases for another. That may be better, but it's right. just a biased perspective.
3: Well, I think I think this curation is better. I mean, you know, I think what we're saying is that, that social networks should not be banning users from participating in a free marketplace of ideas on hot button political and social topics like COVID, you know, and all the other things that people got banned for. However, you're not gonna be able to post swastikas inside the Star of David. You're not gonna be able to dox people or on a continuous real-time basis. You're not gonna be able to impersonate people. This is the other thing that they were up in arms about. I remember when Kathy Griffin got banned. She was impersonating people and then posting fake political endorsements. I mean, if that's not election disinformation, I don't know what is. So, you know, these are reasonable content moderation decisions. You know, in my view, free speech never meant that anything goes. And even if you look at Supreme Court case law, the First Amendment does not mean anything goes. The Supreme Court has created at least nine categories of speech that it considers to be dangerous and therefore not protected by the First Amendment. I think it would be good for social networks to ground uh, their content moderation policies to the extent they're able in First Amendment case law. And I think you can do that to create a little bit of a neutral authority. I don't think it's going to be perfect because, you know, there are, um, specific requirements that social networks have. You can't subject every content moderation decision to a, uh, to a court level of evidence. We're not gonna have a trial, you know, over billions of tweets every day. We can't do that. So we're never going to to apply a first amendment standard, but you know, can we look to Supreme court case law, hundreds of years of it to try and ground content moderation decisions in something, neutral that everybody respects. Yeah, I think you can do that. Hmm. Uh but look, it doesn't mean you're gonna that anything goes. And um and this is the this is the dilemma is, you know, on the one hand, you got people criticizing Elon for uh creating an environment that supposedly isn't conducive to advertisers. And then on the other hand, they're criticizing him for banning doxing, impersonation and swastikas. So what's it gonna be? I mean, you know, you can't have it both ways. I think that he has taken a reasonable, down-the-middle approach towards content moderation. We're not going to ban Jay Jay Bhattacharya, but, you know, sorry, like, we're not going to allow Yitler. So, I mean, that's kind of where we're at.
2: I I noticed (laughs) you use the the we pronoun there. Um, Obviously, I have to ask, you know, I've just been throwing questions at you for 45 minutes, Mm -hmm. almost as if you were in charge of Twitter, and any short list of potential CEOs includes you. Um, if you were so asked would you take the job
3: no i am not i'm not a candidate and i, I should clarify when i say we I, I say that as someone who supports these decisions so i'm defending them as somebody who believes in the in the uh, correctness of the decisions that are being made so i'm is that a definite
2: no you would absolutely so i i I'm completely ruling it out
3: yes yes no i'm i'm the key man at at craft ventures so you know taking a an operating job is not, not in the cards for me, nor is it something I want to do.
2: Do you think he will step down though as CEO, like he did promise after that Twitter poll?
3: Um, yeah, I think I think that at some point he'll find the right person to appoint as CEO, and um, I think that he'll step back into some sort of chairman role or something like that. And um, but no, I think it'll it, be
2: there's no timeline as far as you know.
3: I, I don't know of any timeline. No, so I think he's got to find the right person. And I think he's also, I also think that he's got to finish making this round of changes that he is making. Cause I think that only Elon can, can do this. I mean, again, in something like less than two months, he's been able to go in and right-size the company by something like 75%. Um, I think that he's already gotten product development moving. I think that he's made some important course corrections on, censorship. And I don't know that anybody else could have done what he's done so quickly. So I think he's got to get through. My, my, my personal view is that he needs to implement his plan. And then I think he could bring in a CEO to help run the company.
2: Will you speculate with us? I mean, after all, it's, it's a free world. We're, we're fans of free <laughs> speech here. Are there any names that we should be thinking about as potential CEOs when that time comes, do you think?
3: No, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I, I really don't. You know, the, the, the person who, who's worked very effectively with Elon over, I guess, a couple of decades now is Quinn Shotwell at SpaceX. So, um, you know, I don't know exactly what Elon needs at Twitter. But if he could find someone like a Gwynne Shotwell, that would be, I think, that would be great.
2: Final speculation for you, and then uh, we're going to let you go. Fast mm-hmm. forward two years' time from today. Do you think Twitter is a growing profitable company? Or do you think it will be seen as having had crises and will be still in some negative situation?
3: No, I think uh, I think it'll be, I, I think that it'll be profitable. And I think the product will be far better than it is. I think you'll, I mean, two years is a long time uh, at the pace that Elon is moving. I mean, Elon is moving in kind of like dog years pace. So two years, I mean, look at what he's done in the last... Two months, so I think the product will be uh, different, and I'd say radically better. I think it'll do a lot more. I think you'll be able to do a lot more with it, and I think he'll have fixed the the problem of the company being massively unprofitable and losing billions of dollars. So I don't know what the numbers will be, but I suspect that he'll have it at least at break even by two years from now.
2: David Sachs, thank you for your extremely optimistic and positive. <laughs>
3: <chat with us. laughs> Thanks, Freddie.
2: That was David Sachs, a close friend of Elon, the founding partner of Kraft Ventures and a co-founder of PayPal, giving us his take, admittedly, through a very pro-Elon perspective. I'm sure he would be happy to concede that, but one that has a lot of insight and a lot of information about what's really going on in Twitter. Let's just hope that he doesn't announce he is the new CEO next week, because then this show will have got it wrong. Thanks to him. Thanks to you for tuning in. This was Unheard.